Welcome to Kindred Media, a nonprofit initiative of Kindred World. Kindred has gathered thought leaders, researchers, and activists exploring the new story of the human family for over 15 years. Visit our website for our new story features, interviews, podcasts, and video collections at www.kindredmedia.org. This is Lisa Reagan, and today I'm talking with Joan Williams, founding director of the University of California at Hastings Center for Work-Life Law. She is also the author of numerous books that have reshaped the debates over women's advancement for the past quarter century. Her scholarly research has documented workplace bias against mothers, organized social scientists to document workplace bias, and exposed how work-family conflict affects working-class families through reports such as one sick child away from being fired. The center's recent report exposed discrimination against breastfeeding workers is online uh, and on Kindred if you'd like to find it there. So I talked with Joan this summer at the Center for Work-Life Law's Breastfeeding Policy Summit in San Francisco. The summit presented a refined set of insights and tools for activists to take back to their states. The tools from the summit enabled activists to understand how public policy and law can be shaped and pushed through in their state's legal system. The summit offered sophisticated tools for what I perceived as creating the systemic change America needs desperately at this time. So welcome, Joan. Delighted to be here, Lisa. Thanks for the invitation. Well, I'm, I know we both have colds, so I'll just, uh, as we said before we started recording, we're activists, we're going to push through, and there that is. <laughs> so we'll just get Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so what I would like to do is, I really would like to introduce kindred readers and listeners to the, your tremendous body of work, <coughs> which is uh, going to provide what I believe a different context for looking at breastfeeding issues in the United States. And I, I really, again, encourage um, listeners as whatever you can get your hands on that Joan has uh, written about a working family and the, and the work-life conflict, uh, please read it. It's, there, it's a tremendous uh, amount of work that we're not going to be able to cover in a few moments. So what I would like to do is start with your belief that the work-family conflict isn't really about women, it's about men and toxic masculinity. Yeah, I mean, we tend to associate work-family conflict with women because <clears throat> they're kind of on the front lines. But it really goes back to how we define the ideal worker. And in far too many workplaces today, we still define the ideal worker as someone who takes no time off for childbirth, no time off for family caregiving, and no time for breastfeeding. Who does that describe? You know, it certainly does not describe most women. It describes um, someone with a man's body and men's traditional life patterns. And even one of the things that we've seen over the past, I've been working on this issue for nearly 40 years, one of the things that's really dramatic is there's been a shift among younger men in what they see as being a good father. It, men my generation, I'm in my 60s, thought that they were great fathers because they changed the diaper. Um, but younger men really are kind of where my generation of mothers were, many of them. They see being a good parent as involving, um, being, involving daily care of children 
and they're willing to take some career hut, uh, career hits to accomplish that. But uh, there's an, um, another group of men, many of them older, some of them equally young, who just don't see that as being a good father. They see that as being an ineffective breadwinner and an ineffective man. And um, so this is really a conflict among men in the workplace where um, the men who have defined their lives by being that ideal worker, they see that as the only way to be a real man and an effective person. And they're really what's blocking change. And as you have written in your work about uh, the working class, and we should just pause here for a moment and say there are these uh, class conflicts and perception that Joan explores in her work. And that when we're talking about professionals and the elite, they, when they, they hear the phrase working class, they think of the poor, when actually we're talking about the, most of Americans in the middle. Is that right, Joan? Well, there's really, um, to, for purposes of analyzing politics and social policy in the United States, um, I really think we need to think about three different groups. One are low-income people the pot, in the bot, with the bottom 30% of Americans by household income with an annual household income around $22,000. And then that, that's the poor. And then the professionals are really um, the top 16 to 20%. They have a, um, an average annual income of about 175. And then they're the 50% of Americans in the middle. And sometimes they're called the middle class, sometimes they're called the working class, but they're the middle 53%, and they have a um, median an annual income of around 75000 And that is, um, there are conflicts bet um, between the elite and the middle are driving, for example, um, Trumpian politics. And the, the conflicts between those two groups also are what have made it really impossible to pass at a federal level effective legislation to reconcile work and family in the way that has been done in most other industrialized countries. And what you point out in your, uh, just to bring those two issues together, the class and the uh, toxic masculinity is this idea of being a breadwinner and an economy that has continued to deteriorate in the last couple of generations uh, is a lethal uh, ideology for men. It's, yeah, well, it's, um, <clears throat> it's not a healthy ideology for men more generally. I mean, the ethic of overwork um, that's built into that conception of the ideal worker uh, leads to higher health, I mean, has healthcare prices as well as family prices. But one of the things that we see in the United States because of the growing inequality of income is that um, it used to be that blue-collar men and white-collar men could perform as ideal workers. That is much less so now with the withering of good, solid blue-collar jobs. And the alternative to those ideal worker jobs, blue and white-collar, has increasingly become kind of jobs where you have to scramble even to get enough hours. And there's a huge literature, and we've done a huge study talking about how people's schedules are often so unstable that um, they, they're given part-time hours and they have no idea when those part-time hours are going to be from week to week. 
that obviously puts people literally at risk of losing their children or losing their job because if they don't show up to their job, which they just found out two hours ago they have to show up to, um, then they're going to lose their job. But if they leave young children home alone, then they might well lose their children. So um, a lot of Americans, um, certainly among that bottom 30%, but increasingly even Americans in the middle are in that kind of situation. And not too surprising, they're fit to be tied. They're very angry about it. And and when, what are they doing with that anger? Well, unfortunately, they're not doing anything very effective at that anger right now. Um, that anger has been kind of sculpted um, at, uh, is, has been sculpted as anger towards um, um, elites, which has been expressed and anger towards kind of professionals, <clears throat> professors, Elizabeth Warrens of the world, um, rather than focusing the anger on the people who are designing those jobs in that exploitative way in the first place. That's the political challenge of economic populism. And race is definitely a big factor there. These, many of the, those, the people, both on the bottom and in the middle, um, if they're white, they're interpreting the fact that they, have, they no longer see a path to a stable middle-class life. They interpret that through the lens of race. <clears throat> That's because they're white people instead of interpreting it through the lens of class, that it's because they're working class people, which in my view is, is actually what's going on. So when, when we were in California, I found out that you had written the most read article in the Harvard Business Review ever. And the title of that is, uh, well, actually, there's, you have the new book out uh, that's White Working Class, Overcoming Class Cluelessness <coughs> in America. And then the Harvard Business Review article was what so many people don't get about the U.S. working class. Um, what, is, what is going to need to happen? Because it, you, in that article, you say this is um, dangerous, that there is so much cluelessness between classes. Well, what really people need to understand is that the key class conflict that's driving economic populism, and this is as true in Europe, actually, as it is in the United States, the book has had a big reception in Europe, is the, that middle 53%, not the poor, but the middle 53% who have seen their incomes and the solidity of their lives really threatened by globalization and accompanying economic changes. Um, that, that group is very different culturally and economically from the, what I call the professional managerial elite, that top 16 to 20%, who also, by the way, in the U.S. call themselves middle class, so it's extremely confusing. Um, but uh, and they, there's really what I call a class culture gap between those two groups. Um, that is largely shared actually across, across race, although there's one important difference that I will mention. Um, and that um, the professional managerial elite, they're very focused on self-development because that's what, that's what helps them get and keep good jobs. And they're very focused on displaying sophistication um, because that's what marks them as a, as a member of that elite. 
So there's very specific emotion rules as to who you're supposed to be empathetic with and who you're supposed to be judgmental of. You're empathetic with the people who produce jazz. You're judgmental of the people who have pink flamingos on their lawns. So there's a very specific class and race set of emotion rules uh, in the elite. There's also a set of um, class commitments and emotion rules in the middle class. And in that context, and this is true across race, um, people are less focused on self-development than they are on self-discipline, the kind that gets you up and to work every day to a not very glorious job without an attitude. That takes a lot of self-discipline. And so people in the middle are very respectful of self-discipline and the institutions that traditionally aid self-discipline, the church, the military, family values. And so you have this class culture gap between the elite, which is very focused on kind of the edgy, whether it's edgy dressing, edgy language, edgy sexuality, to show their sophistication, and the people in the middle of all races that are very focused on traditional institutions and the self-discipline that they aid. And that, that's the class culture gap that is driving um, American and, I must say, European politics. And the, the condescension of the professional managerial elite towards um, people in the middle and their, their bad taste their lack of sophistication, um, and uh, is really fueling a lot of political fury. I mean, the, the best example, um, the, among the elite, people have sort of understood that they need to run class condescension through their head if it's class condescension to people of color because they are very focused on race. They're not focused at all on class in the professional managerial elite because class doesn't exist. They're just where they are because they're the smartest people, not because they started with a silver spoon and now have a platinum spoon, understand. So it's, it's far easier for them to admit the existence of racial privilege than it is to admit the existence um, of class privilege. And that's kind of the essence of class cluelessness. Mm, okay. Okay. So, uh, before th- this is, you know, just to clue in <laughs> our listeners again, what we're doing is mapping out context and what's really in front of us as we turn toward this breastfeeding policy summit and the, the takeaways from that, that a glorious um, uh, meeting that you sponsored in August of this year. Um, but right before we get to that, I would really like to point out that, that you are a feminist writer and I would like for you to map out the connection between feminism and work-life law. Well, I mean, I'm actually think of myself as a, as a scholar of social inequality. Um, I started out in feminism because that's the dimension of social inequality that affected me being born, you know, as a basically a privileged white woman. Um, but then I realized that I was interested not just in um, feminism as traditionally defined, I was really interested in how the configuration uh, and gender bias, but how racial bias, uh, sorry, how gender bias differs uh, by race, Um, because gender bias is a very racialized phenomenon. So um, basic white women definitely encounter it, 
but they encounter it in somewhat different ways than women of other racial groups encounter it. For example, where if a woman, if a white woman is not is too dominant, she's often she may be written off as a, a witch. Um, if an Asian American is, she may be written off as a dragon lady. And uh, my, you know, I've done been doing interviews of Latinx women, and they may be called feisty or sassy. Um, and all, those those are at some level is that nuance? I don't think so. There are some very important differences that are embedded there. And so kind of the second step was to understand, try to understand how the experience of gender bias differed by race. And then the the third step really was to understand the parallels and divergences between gender bias and racial bias. Because um, one of the, for example, there are four basic patterns of bias and um, three of them are triggered both by gender and by race. For example, one of them I call prove it again. And that's that some groups have to prove themselves more than others. And our research shows that that's very true. It's true in today's workplace. And that the group that that, that, that reports the highest level of that prove it again bias um, is women of color. Um, so I'm very interested in these different vectors of social inequality. I've been talking about class as well and how they, how they interact. Sorry, I guess that's pretty abstract. I hope that's what you wanted. <laughs> well, I uh, read an interview where you were saying that you saw feminism as being divided into at least three distinctive and overlapping pursuits. And one was the work family, which is the yes. that you're in now. <clears throat> yes. Yeah, um, I see uh, feminism as being divided into kind of what I call the work family axis which um, the, is the subject of this interview. And then there's the, the sex violence axis, which includes things like rape and sexual harassment, all, all of the ways that sex and violence intertwine. Um, and then there, um, there are other, uh, other axes as well. The third major is what I call the queer axis, and that has to do with um, the conventional alignment of how you dress, for example, and um, the shape of your body and your reproductive function. Okay. So at the Work-Life Law Center, which you are the founder of, how did your work take you there? And then I'd like to just go right into the, the uh, Breastfeeding Policy Summit and some questions about that um, the day we spent together with, uh, with uh, so many presenters who gave us uh, very sophisticated tools for, again, making change when we returned home. Yeah, I mean, I had my first child in 1986. Um, and at that point, I uh, got really hot under the collar because I realized that the way the world is set up is pretty much designed to marginalize mothers economically. And a society that marginalizes its mothers impoverishes its children, which is what we have. As I've mentioned, children are the poorest group um, <clears throat> in the United States. And the last time I looked, if you compared <coughs> um, compare women to men and you include people who work part-time, which, of course, many mothers do, um, mothers still made 59 cents um, on the dollar that um, that, that fathers make. And, um, and so we've seen really very, very little progress. 
And the research shows that um, the motherhood penalty, the penalty that women encounter economically when they have children, now um, accounts for an increasing proportion of the gender gap. And so I founded Work Life Law basically to say we got to make the world um, safe for mothers and safe for um, uh, because the way we organize work and family now is bad for women. It's in many ways worse for men, as we've talked about. They kind of get um, stuck in these toxic ideal worker uh, scripts. And of course, it's worst for children because, um, again, a society that marginalizes its mother, imp- mothers impoverishes its children. And we set aside mothers as the group that is um, that's charged with championing children. And then we make them very um, economically vulnerable and very socially belittled. This is a terrible idea. And so one of the first things I did is... Um, that people were openly discriminating against mothers and they were, um, federal courts were saying that's not sex discrimination. So we got turned that around. That is sex discrimination. And now people recognize it and it's recognized in courts as sex discrimination. Um, And then another thing that we did at Work Life Law is, (coughs) (coughs) please excuse me, Um, Another thing we did is we were part of the generation that crystallized um, flexible work arrangements, including quality part-time work. Now, it was not completely successful, but it was was far more successful than, you know, before. And um, because when you think about it, if you uh, were redesigning that ideal worker for today's world, um, most adults uh, with children have to both help support the children and help care for the children. That's the reality on the ground. And for many, many people, that's their ideal, too. They want to contribute to their children in two different ways. Um, and that's far better for children because you have two, cho- two both partners invested in the children and not just the partner who is really invested, economically very vulnerable, and a lot less powerful in the relationship. So before we started recording, we we talked about the baselines for species-typical optimal health, which I I Mm -hmm. jokingly shared was a phrase that is better to use uh, I found in the last, uh, especially the last 15 years of presenting to groups, um, and for some reason, especially in California, uh, if I tried to talk about family wellness, babies, um, and uh, where where does health begin, I was really researching um, the wellness paradigm, and where is that in this culture, how do we get to, to that place? And what I saw in the audience would be if I said words like mother, baby, family, fathers, you know, mm. this recoiling. <laughs> so I started monitoring my language and, and altering it to say more neutral terms and to really trot out just this very basic science uh, uh, that is missing from a lot of our clearly from our public policy, which are the baselines for health that do begin prenatally. Um, so, uh, you had a wonderful response to that. Uh, just clarify again, 
for me. Why is this baseline for wellness, especially in infants, you know, for, um, for mothers missing? Well, it's, it's missing in the U.S. because we, um, we kind of don't do social subsidies. Um, <clears throat> and uh, so what we, the, the traditional conception in the U.S. is that having a child is kind of like a, a private frolic, kind of like hang gliding. I don't finance your hang gliding. Why should you finance my child? And you think about that when you kind of run it through your head, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, I mean, the, the reason I should try help finance your child is because that's the next generation of citizens. That's the only way we have a country going forward. Um, and at a more concrete level, when, you know, I'm in my nineties, God willing, and uh, I need a doctor to take care of me, it's going to be someone's kid. Who, who's that doctor? But Americans, um, again, they, they kind of erase all of that. And they think having children is something that's kind of like a private affair that has no implications for, um, for spreading the costs. And they typically um, privatize the cost of childbearing on the individual mothers. That's a terrible idea. Um, and it's not one that is going to deliver either the health of the nation or, as you point out, the health of the individuals in it. Right. I'm meeting Burke Harris is now the Surgeon General of uh, California, and she is a champion for ACEs, the Adverse Child, uh, Childhood Events study that was done. It's actually done by Kaiser Permanente back in 1979. It's just now coming out to show how our baselines for wellness have shifted so much that if we were to use some of these predictors of adult illness um, by testing children early, to see what have they already been exposed to. You know, we can tell, is this going to be a healthy population or is this going to be a population that is going to be so sick? Um, they're going to, once again, you know, you're talking about who's, why should I spend my money on your child? Well, if we don't have mm. these baselines for wellness in place, as she's uh, advocating for now, and her work is tremendous, um, then we're, we're gonna pay at the front or we're gonna pay at the end. Either way, we're going to pay. Mm -hmm. So it's better it's to true. create yeah. a healthy population from the beginning. So this takes me into the, the breastfeeding piece, uh, the breastfeeding summit. And again, uh, this wasn't necessarily about you know, the, the, uh, the reason why we should advocate for breastfeeding because that was a given. This was the very sophisticated, um, uh, rarefied error even of how do we go back to our legislators in our states and understand some of these very important insights that we were um, we learned about languaging and nonpartisan languaging and what I just said about mothers and watching the audience recoil if I talked about families anything to do with families you know there we were given a sheet at the summit about uh, what's what may or may not work and what you may want to strike from your language when you're talking with a legislator but this kind of training and thinking um, I found to be truly invaluable especially when we're talking about practical reality of real systemic change as quickly as we could possibly get it to happen in America. <coughs> I don't see another fast track. Yeah, yeah. No, breastfeeding, I think there's really an opportunity now to make a lot of progress on breastfeeding. 
And one of the things that we have done at Work Life Law from the very beginning is tried to bridge that class culture gap that I talked about before. Um, that, and this is also a regional gap. So you would talk very differently in California to legislatures than you would in Mississippi. Um, but um, the from the very beginning, we have seen um, the kind of advocacy we do around family caregivers as um, very much standing up for the values people hold in family life. In fact, uh, um, the tagline of work-life law um, at one point was redesigning work around the values people hold in family life. And I think it's um, important, depending on the context, to be able to hum this tune in two different keys. Um, in the, um, the context of conservatism, you're talking with, when you're talking about breastfeeding is, are you talking about whether people can take a per, the personal responsibility to um, raise the healthiest child that they can and support themselves economically and not get fired in the process? So we're deeply talking about personal responsibility and we're talking about the values people hold, that family life is important, that family life is central, that children are cherished. And um, all of that language is very, very good that works well, that that language works well in red states um, and to get conservative voters even in blue states. And um, none of that language... I mean, I believe all that language. I don't know. Do you? I think that families are important. Mm -hmm. I believe in personal responsibility. Now, these have these words have been used in some ugly ways, but I'm not using them in ugly ways. I'm using them in ways in order to explain to Americans why they need to create less family-hostile public policy. On the other hand, in a very blue state like California, I mean, God forbid you should talk about nursing mothers because they're trans men who may be nursing, right? So it's like a totally different scene. Um, and But that somebody who is working with a state legislature probably needs to be able to frame the message in at least two different ways and perhaps more. And then when we are going through this system uh, together, uh, there, there were a number of other takeaways from the summit. Uh, what would you like for us to know to really, to, to, uh, there's so much, I'm, I'm keeping an eye on the time right now. So I'm going to put yeah. it off on you. Yeah. <laughs> um, one thing that's really important in breastfeeding advocacy is not to guilt trip women who choose not to breastfeed. There are many ways to raise a healthy child, and that has to be an important message. On the other hand, many women do choose to breastfeed, and um, once you are breastfeeding, it is really important for a mother or um, a, for a breastfeeding worker uh, to have require, for example, to have access to um, regular breaks. If in order to pump or breastfeed, if she doesn't, she's liable to get a very painful and possibly serious breast infection where um, it's, uh, your temperature spikes up 
and um, it can uh, it can turn to a serious health condition. It's also very important for a breastfeeding worker to have access to a clean a clean place to pump, because after all, uh, you wouldn't want your food prepared in a bathroom. And um, babies don't have as strong immune systems <clears throat> as yours is. And often employers, particularly small employers, this makes them very anxious, and I can understand that. But there is typically a way it, with a little bit of forethought that employers, even small employers, can arrange for a private place for pumping, for example, if you're in a retail environment, there's often a, a small manager's office in the back that a woman can use for um, a few minutes in order to pump her milk. And so it's um, the uh, often opponents, breastfeeding opponents, strike this as a, an incredibly incredible burden um, on workers. Uh, I mean, sorry, on employers. But really, what's the incredible burden on employers? is if they lose one trained and effective employee after the other because the it's a um, um, uh, a worker who needs to breastfeed and the employer is being extremely rigid. One of the things that we found in our report on breastfeeding discrimination, title Exposed, is that many, many women, uh, many, many breastfeeding workers who experience discrimination end up losing their jobs. And that's terrible for women. It's terrible for children. It's also terrible for those women's employers. And I speak as an employer. I've been an employer for over 20 years. And I can't pretend it's not sometimes a nuisance when women have children or women need to breastfeed. It's also a nuisance when people have a heart attack. And uh, it would be far better if... Um, Workers didn't have bodies at all, but that's not the workforce you're dealing with. The workforce is of human beings, and they have heart attacks, and they need to breastfeed, and that means if you pretend otherwise, you're going to be losing one conscientious trained worker after the other, and you may not be counting up that expense, but that is a very steep expense. It is not. It does not make sense from a pure employer standpoint. And that's another argument that is very going to be very persuasive in some state legislatures with legislators who are very concerned um, about putting undue burdens on business, especially small business. Mm. Well, I can tell you a bit of good news, and that is in Virginia this year, I created the Workplace Breastfeeding uh, award program for employers who to rank themselves in this um, application process they would go through and see how they were doing and then they would come out the other side and, and they would get a, a bronze silver or a gold award and it's just a pilot project that was paid for um, uh, with the CDC grant through the state of Virginia but the response with no uh, budget for advertising <laughs> was tremendous. Wow. And we had 23 mm. companies sign up and uh, receive their awards. And most of them were the big 
companies, though. NASA, Naval Weapons Station, um, mm -hmm. big companies uh, who are able to do what you're talking about to provide this level of space. And there were some um, smaller businesses that were in there, but by far it was uh, at least this year. And and honestly, I was just really thrilled that they got the word. Congratulations. Yeah. I mean, that's such a great idea and a great, a great, you know, a great accomplishment. And mm -hmm. I really think that you get the best out of people by speaking to their best selves yes. um, and not demonize them. And so that kind of awards program um, can have a really big impact particularly if it continues to grow and it will provide you, and I'm sure you're all over this with really concrete descriptions of like, you might think that it would be impossible to give suitable breastfeeding time and space in this kind of job, but here's an employer who's doing it and here's exactly how. Um, I really think it's, it's a, a lot of this is a failure of imagination. Um, and the failure of imagination goes back to very judgmental um, set of thoughts that stem from the ideal worker. The ideal worker doesn't need time off for breastfeeding. Well, yes, they do. You know, they are conscientious. They are conscientious about their job. They need to keep their job to support their child. But they also want to be a good mom. Um, and those are just the kind of workers that you want. And that's the um, that's the importance of that kind of prize program that you've established. Congratulations. Well, it was the state that funded and directed that program. So uh, we'll see how that takes off over the years. And I Absolutely. want to thank you again for coming on and talking to us. I, I am so grateful that we could cover this big picture territory, which I feel like reorients the discussion and also for activists helps us to see what are the real hidden challenges that perhaps we're not perceiving. What are some of our own, as you uh, illuminated for us, class conflicts, class bias, cluelessness that we're not perceiving and how to approach um, the issue of uh, breastfeeding and um, the workplace, right? this all applies. I have, I have one final thought as I think about it. Um, we have run a hotline for workers who encounter discrimination based on family responsibilities. We've run it for, for 20 years. Um, so that if people do encounter discrimination, they should definitely um, feel, uh, feel free to call uh, our hotline, and I can give that number in a minute. Okay. Um, but the other thing to um, keep in mind is that one of the things that we have found over the years is that, uh, sadly, sometimes um, white women are offered um, accommodations. Um, and that that are denied to women of color. And if you see that kind of pattern in your workplace, um, you know, how you want to handle it is there's lots of different ways to handle it. Um, but that's race discrimination, um, and that's illegal. So that's one thing that people should keep in mind um, as they uh, kind of try to navigate these issues. Yes, and the URL. Can I give you that hotline yes. number? Mm -hmm. yes. um, the hotline number is 415 703 8276. Okay. 
And you can also go to worklifelaw.org and uh, visit the site and, and find tremendous amount of resources there. Um, yes, so, the hotline, the email is hotline at worklifelaw.org. Mm -hmm. Okay, is there anything else? No, I thank you very much. I thank, thank you for the opportunity and for your work. Oh, thank you so much. And I'll just tell our listeners that you can find all kinds of resources and links uh, wherever you found this uh, recording. It, there will be lots of resources for you below. And you can go to kindredmedia.org is our nonprofit initiative that also has uh, pages and pages of resources. So thank you so yeah. much. Oh, again. may I, excuse me. Yes. May, may <laughs> I mention one other thing? Now you triggered something in me. Uh -huh. um, where for If you're a worker and you're having challenges based on breastfeeding or other caregiving responsibilities, uh -huh. um, you can check out our webpage at Pregnant at Work or just go to the Work Life Law webpage. If you're a student and you're having similar challenges, you can go to our webpage called The Pregnant Scholar. Excellent. I'll make sure to have all of those resources and their links Wonderful. for our interview. All right. Well, thank you so much again for coming, and I look forward to hopefully talking to you again soon. Thank you. I hope you feel better. Oh, you too. <laughs> yeah, well. Okay. Great. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.